and welcome to another week of Offbeat Oregon History Stories. As ever, I am your host, Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com. And as you are probably all too aware, it's Monday. That means that instead of reading one of the archive columns from the past 14 years of Offbeat Oregon History columns, I am going to be reading you a primary source document, something interesting pulled from the pages of Oregon history. In this case, it is the autobiography of an Oregon pioneer, which was turned over by a member of the now-deceased pioneer's family to the writers at the Works Progress Administration's Federal Writers Project, working on the Oregon Folklore Studies Enterprise in, like, 1938, deep in the Great Depression. On today's Primary Source Monday offering, we have the first of a three-part series which consists of most of the autobiography of J. Henry Brown. In 1847, while a lad of 15, Mr. Brown crossed the great prairies and mountains of the Oregon Trail in a wagon train with his father, grandfather, and sundry other relatives. Brown's grandfather kept a store back east in Illinois, and being unable to liquidate it on congenial terms, packed all the inventory into wagons and hauled the whole kit and caboodle across the country to Salem, where he set it all up again, as much as made it, because as we'll be hearing, a lot of the cattle that were supposed to be pulling the wagon train died along the way. But it was the first store in the history of the town of Salem. At the time, the town of Salem was just a few houses. This is 1847. The autobiography was written by Mr. Brown and was handed over to the Works Progress Administration's Oregon Folklore Project workers in early 1940. Um by one of Mr. Brown's descendants, of course. He would have been 109 years old in 1940 if he were still alive, but but he was not. Um, The typescript is easily accessible and read on the Library of Congress website if you would prefer to read it for yourself, um, which you might want to do. It is at loc.gov slash item slash WPALH 002000 quick word about what we've got in store for you. This autobiography starts out great with a compelling account of the trials and vicissitudes of the Oregon Trail from the viewpoint of a 15-year-old boy. Around page 20 to 22, however, the author switches to boasting about what a wonderful place Oregon is and how God has seen fit to clear the Indians off of it so that a great civilization can be founded there and blah, 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 that wall-to-wall manifest destiny crap. It has not aged well. So I am leaving it out of this reading. If you would like to check it out for some crazy reason, you will find it on the Library of Congress's website. So that's, that's that. One other thing too, this document uses racial slurs to refer to Indian women, which I have censored. Sorry about that. I'm just not going to put that word in my mouth. Um, If you want to see it in its full offensive glory, you know, head on over to loc.gov and um, you can read it for yourself. So anyway, with that out of the way, without further ado, let's get started. J. Henry Brown, Autobiography. 
Bancroft Library, permission to copy granted by Miss Nettie Spencer. I was born in Wilmington, Will County, Illinois, August 4th, 1831. My father had moved to that state at an early day and become acquainted with my mother, Miss Lucinda Cox, whose father, Thomas Cox, had been a resident for several years and who is in fact a pioneer in the portion of Illinois in which he resided. Father married in 1836 and soon became interested in a woolen mill and a flouring mill that my grandfather had erected at Wilmington, a town which he had laid out and which is now a thriving little city. My grandfathers on both sides passed through the various vicissitudes that befall all early settlers in a new country, and in fact I sprang from a pioneer stock, both of my great-grandfathers being pioneers and participants in the War of 1812 and the Indian Wars of the new country in which they had settled. The continued reports that were promulgated through the publications of the day in regards to the then-mysterious country, Oregon, their natural disposition was to remove to new countries to better their condition. Continual sickness in their family caused by the undrained swamps which abounded in that portion of Illinois determined my grandfather and parents to emigrate to Oregon. They were unable to dispose of their property for two years, but finally a gentleman from New York State in the fall of 1846 purchased the property at a great sacrifice. Preparations were immediately begun for the long, dangerous trip— in the transfer of property, my grandfather could not dispose of a store that he owned. Consequently, he determined to purchase wagons and take it with him, thereby completely circumventing a combination against him of compelling a disposal of the goods for a nominal price. Teams of four yoke of oxen each, wagons, necessary firearms with ample supply of ammunition, and the innumerable articles actually necessary for the trip were purchased and the day for departure set. The Oregon fever, as it was termed, raged fearfully, and the applicants as drivers for our teams were numerous, so there was no difficulty in making choice with the understanding that they were to drive teams and stand guard and assist in camp duties for their board and transportation of their clothing and tools, as most of them were tradesmen of different kinds. It was found necessary to ship a portion to our rendezvous at St. Joseph, Missouri, as we were compelled to haul feed for our teams a greater portion of the way, the winter having just broken up and the roads being almost impassable. I remember only a portion of the young men that started with us, but will remark that the following came through to Salem, Oregon, where our journey ended, Walter and Thomas Monteith, brothers, Samuel Althouse, William Bosey, and Mr. Van Vorse. Some others who started gave up the trip on arriving at St. Joseph, as there were rumors rife at that place concerning the Pawnee Indians, well calculated to discourage the attempts to cross the plains. Our train consisted of thirteen wagons, and on the morning of March 15, 1847, the teams were hitched, and everything being in readiness, leave-takings were exchanged in the streets of Wilmington. Although I was quite young, the scene was indelibly fixed upon my mind. Tears were shed by mother and daughters as they embraced each other for the last time on earth, and the parting kiss was given to the last token of love from the hearts that knew the parting was forever. It was as solemn as a funeral, only the actors were in health, and the withdrawal from sight was as irretrievable as the clods upon the coffin. One portion remained to develop a prosperous state, while those who left went to found a glorious state in our union on the faraway Pacific— and plant the stars of glory there. 
the sundown of one continent, to fulfill a destiny the same as the pilgrims who landed on Plymouth Rock. But the final hour had come, the word was given, and the train started on its long, weary six months of travel and toil. After traveling a few miles, we camped, but the start had been made, and nearly all for the first time in their lives experienced the novelty of camping. Well, there was nothing of great interest happened until we arrived at Skunk River in Iowa, a district of country sparsely settled but abundantly supplied with wild honey and turkeys. A family consisting of man, wife, and three grown daughters had lived there for several years and subsisted mostly on game and what little corn and vegetables that were required for their modest wants. The old gentleman came to our camp and noticed a cooking stove that had been taken out of one of the wagons to prepare the evening meal. He went to his cabin immediately and brought his family, who with great interest made a minute examination of the new cooking contrivance, my grandmother taking great pains to show them the construction of the stove and explain to them how it cooked and baked. When we sat down to our supper, they were invited to partake, which they accepted. We had biscuits made of wheat flour, which to them was a great treat, and their admiration knew no bounds. We continued our journey without any further incidents and arrived in due time at St. Joseph, where we remained for several days arranging our loads for the final start. Our company consisted of Joseph Cox, son of Thomas Cox and Peter Pally, son-in-law of Thomas Cox, and Louis Pettijohn, and about the 1st of May made a final start. Having only a short time since come into possession of a journal kept by one of the company, I will draw upon it for incidents along the trip. Camp Organization Immediately upon crossing the Missouri River, we was outside of the settlements. No more houses could be seen at that early day except at the different trading posts or forts of the four companies. A short distance from the river, we found camp, and during evening, an election was held. Thomas Cox was the oldest man, and who owned most of the wagons in the train, was chosen captain. A few minutes after this necessary preliminary had been arranged, a stranger rode into camp and stated that he wished to go to Oregon and would like to accompany us if suitable arrangements could be made. As one of our Teamsters had that evening decided not to make the trip, the stranger was accepted. He gave his name as Bradshaw and stated that he had been upon the plains considerably and had followed trapping. I shall have occasion to speak of him again. Our wagons had only been parked or drove into lines, and the next day he showed us how to corral our wagons as follows. After the place had been selected for the camp, the leading team stopped at the place designated and the next immediately to the rear and quartering with the forward wheels nearly even with the hind wheels of the first wagon, the third wagon assuming the same position to the second, and so on through the train, forming a circle when the train had all assumed their positions. The teams would now be inside of the corral. After they had been unyoked and driven out, the tongues were chained to preceding wagons, then making a barricade of great strength with which to keep the stock during the night and to resist an attack by Indians. The campfires were built inside where the cooking was done and the tents stretched. A bivouac of a large train, for other trains had joined us and now numbered forty wagons, is a very picturesque sight. The white covers of the wagons and the new tents resembled a small village, while the campfires shed their ruddy light on the surrounding darkness with its ever-changing hues and making the increasing darkness still more impenetrable. The female portion were busy clearing away the remains of the evening meal and preparing for the early morning breakfast. 
The men, except those who were on guard duty, who would form circles around a fire, smoking and recounting the incidents of the day's travel, singing songs, telling jokes at each other's expense, while in another part of the camp the violin would enliven the air with its notes, to which young and agile feet were keeping time in the merry dance on the soil of the plains, while the boys were marching around playing soldier, led by a youthful drummer who pounded with might and main on a small specimen of that warlike symbol. Gradually the stock would lie down, and the people would retire to dream of home and the dear ones left behind, and the camp would become quiet and the fires grow dimmer until its flickering flames expired. No sound would be heard except the low talk of the guards as they made their rounds or the lonesome howl of the prairie wolf as they prowled around the camp. The position seemed to us strange, and the novelty had not yet been expended. At an early hour the camp would be aroused, preparatory for the day's journey. Immediately after breakfast, the cattle would be driven into camp, then followed a scene of confusion, men and boys running hither and yon, looking for their oxen, a great many of them not yet broken sufficiently to be readily yoked, which added greatly to the uproar, the women hastily packing away cooking utensils or frantically calling out to some child that was disposed to get within dangerous proximity to animal heels, always hurry and bustle, but finally the teams would be yoked and hitched to their respective wagons, and the word would be given for some family team to take the lead for the day, which would, of course, take its place in the rear the next. The train would soon be on the move, stringing along the road with the loose cattle in the rear. Mr. Bradshaw soon assumed the general supervision of the movement of the train, while my grandfather enforced his orders and chose the camp. There was no particular incident transpired until we arrived at the Big Blue River, where the first fatal accident happened in a train as we came up to the banks of that stream. A boy about eight years old was standing on the wagon tongue driving when he lost his balance and fell beneath the wheel which crushed his head, causing instant death. The burial took place that night, and I can recollect the strange sight as people stood around with the light as they consigned him to rest with a boot box for a coffin. In a few days we reached the Platte and entered the edge of buffalo country. The first night we camped upon this stream we were visited by one of those thunderstorms which that part of the world is famous for. The day had been very warm, and in the evening about sundown Mr. Bradshaw discovered a small black cloud in the west and immediately ordered twenty men to saddle horses and remain on them while the rest were secured tightly to the wagons, tents extra pined, the cattle closely herded by horses and footmen. The storm could now plainly be seen coming by the flashes of lightning and the rapidly increasing roar of the thunder. It was well that these precautions had been taken, though not wholly successful. When the storm struck us it was quite dark, which of course added to the confusion. It seemed as if the very elements were at war with each other. The blinding brightness of lightning as it apparently covered acres followed instantaneously that by the deafening crash that seemed to shake the earth accompanied by large hailstones and a terrific wind, when all combined was well calculated to throw everything into confusion. Tents were prostrated, thus increasing the fright of the occupants, cattle bellowing as they rushed by with the storm, horses struggling frantically to break their fastenings to the wagons mingled with the shouting of men made an hour's experience that can never be forgotten when once endured. But the storm went by as rapidly as it had come, leaving a heavy coating of hail in its track with all the cattle gone and the horsemen in pursuit. As the clouds cleared away and the moon and the stars came out, they were enabled to follow and gradually herd them together, and by ten o'clock next morning 
we were again on the move. We traveled days up the Platte. The last morning before we crossed the river, we were detained over two hours to allow a tremendous herd of buffaloes to pass across the road about a quarter of a mile ahead of us. There were at least 500,000 head of these animals, and the thundering noise they made as they galloped along could be distinctly heard at our camp. The reason that Bradshaw did not allow us to proceed was that there was often great danger of losing our livestock. When the herd passed, we went ahead and arrived at the ford of the Platte and immediately proceeded to cross. We were compelled to keep our teams constantly moving as it had a quick sand bottom and the water so muddy that it was impossible for us to see into it an inch. As my father's team had gone about halfway across the stream, the leaders turned back and came near turning over the wagon containing the family. My father was compelled to jump out into the stream waist-deep and very cold and wade alongside of the team. He caught cold and that night had a chill which was followed by an attack of the mountain fever from which he never fully recovered. Well, that concludes part one of this three-part reading of the autobiography of J. Henry Wilson of Salem. We will continue with part two next Monday and finish up with the excerpt the Monday after that. As I mentioned, there is more in the file, which you can find online in PDF form at the Library of Congress at loc.gov slash items slash WPALH 002000.